0: Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. I'm Toby and today I'm joined by two people who each have many interesting things to recommend them, but who are here to talk with me today because they're jointly the creators and editors of a new handbook on Science for Policy called, if you can believe it, the Science for Policy Handbook. So Dr. Vladimir Shukha was, until 2019, the head of the European Commission's Joint Research Centre That's an in-house service whose scientists provide scientific support and input to the Commission's work at all levels. He now works as a special advisor on education and culture to the European Commission. In parallel with a distinguished career in policy and politics at both European level and in his native Slovakia, Vladimir has an academic track record in the field of Earth and environmental sciences. I'm also joined by Marta Sienkiewicz who has a background in sociology and now works as a project officer at the Joint Research Center, or JRC, as we better get used to calling it, I suppose, today. She works specifically on ways to strengthen the impact of scientific research on policymaking. No doubt the fact that she's co-editor of the Science for Policy Handbook, along with Vladimir, is all part of that. So, uh, Marta and Vladimir, thank you both very much for joining me.
1: Yeah, thank you, Toby. It's a
0: pleasure to be with you.
2: Thank you for having us.
0: Sure. So let's not waste time. We have lots to talk about. Uh, Vladimir, perhaps I could come to you first. Could you give us a brief overview of this Science for Policy handbook that you've worked on? How did it come about and what does it do?
1: Yeah, well, that's the the history goes back uh, to my start as a director general or even even earlier as a, as a deputy director general in the JRC back in 2012 when I had the luxury of being deputy, uh, not having the burden of all responsibility on my shoulders immediately, I could observe that uh, the JRC is an excellent research organization, but it is left a little bit at the margin of the interest and political interest and political decisions of of the European Commission. And I was just wondering why it is. And then I came to the conclusion that probably we are not uh, in the the center of the political and policy decisions because we are unable to provide uh, uh, the knowledge uh, and the evidence uh, in a form and in a timing which is uh, needed for uh, the policymakers. So then we started uh, uh, back in 2014 with uh, quite significant um, restructuring uh, uh, of the JRC, of the work, uh, uh, what we do, and uh, this is how we did this, uh, this quite a significant, uh, probably the biggest reform of the JRC in the past two three decades. And uh, it was uh, actually met with uh, quite a lot of uh, positive uh, feedback from the colleagues from the policymaking. And in the past two, two years, uh, two, three years, uh, we have been uh, called to the, the really uh, top meetings uh, and we have been able to provide the evidence for uh, the most important decisions of the European Commission in the past two, three years. And uh, coming back to your to your question is that at the end, we thought that, OK, so this was successful. It's probably it is it's, it's a good uh, good idea to to share our knowledge, share our experience uh, with the others. And this is how we come up uh, with the idea of the book.
0: Great. Yeah. OK, so that's an interesting bit of internal background to the JRC, which I definitely want to come back to. But in the handbook, you don't just talk about how you um, fixed the JRC, as it were. You talk more generally about how the same challenge that the JRC faces or was facing. You think the whole world of science for policy is also facing right now because of um, dramatic fundamental changes in the world at large. And your idea is that these changes demand not more, not just more science advice, but specifically a new kind of science advice and a new way of delivering it, which I think you call in a very zeitgeisty way, Science for Policy 2.0. So let's take it one step at a time. What was Science for Policy 1.0 and what was wrong with it? Yeah, the 1.0 uh, is uh,
1: is uh, our traditional approach of uh, science being um, closed in uh, the universities, institutes, in ivory towers of, uh, of uh, science, and then, when they uh, finished some research, uh, they send results to to the policymakers without really understanding uh, uh, properly how uh, policy works, and that uh, uh, that was uh, sometimes met with the success. Sometimes it was not really very successful and led uh, to uh, frustration of scientists, but also to the frustration of policymakers, because they would love to have some scientific evidence, some scientific advice, but uh, uh, very often science uh, uh, was unable to provide this, um, this advice. And the changes which uh, you mentioned, which we are describing at the beginning uh, of the handbook, are, are really uh, dramatic. Uh, we are changing dramatically our lives. It's probably the biggest uh, uh, revolution, technological revolution, which we are facing uh, right now um, in, uh, in the, the uh, history of humanity. We have enormous uh, um, deluge of knowledge, uh, uh, data, information, and, and subsequently the knowledge. And uh, uh, obviously... All relations and settings in the society in the society are changing. So this requires a completely new approach to, uh, to science uh, policy interaction and uh, uh, creation of the evidence. And this is what we call science for policy 2.0. And probably later on we can we can discuss uh, what are the, the main features of this.
2: I think an important point to add as well is that um, I would say in the 1.0 model, um, the the science advice, uh, the, the use of evidence was very much focused around this idea of a deficit model. So essentially, if only we could provide more knowledge um, that would solve all the problems and that would mean that um, it would be automatically picked up. Um, but But I think that uh, right now, science actually has a lot of competition for attention and we have such a, such a media landscape and quite a polarized political uh, landscape in, in many places as well that creates a situation where essentially everyone can find some sort of evidence or knowledge, even if you call it in quotation marks uh, due to the robustness, um, that can, that can um, support their, their position and their way of thinking. So in that sense, if we think about also the cognitive processes when it comes to uh, what knowledge is picked up, how, how, um, how citizens and policymakers filter knowledge and what even gets on their radar, I think um, in that sense, science also has to adapt in order to, um, to remain relevant in this, in this competition. I mean, of course, it's a complex ecosystem and it's not to say that it's only the responsibility of scientists. To, um, to completely change, uh, change their ways, but there is a role that they have to play in that process.
0: And the sense I'm, I'm getting, I, I guess as well, because you describe it as going from 1.0 to 2.0 and not say to 1.1 1. 1 or something, the sense i'm getting is that this is not just the normal gradual evolution of society and development of how to do things it's a really dramatic change which we're seeing just now for the first time is that fair
1: yes i think i think this is uh, this is a fair description i think that we are um actually uh, going through some uh, revolutionary changes and and i think that uh, all all Uh, parts of society including science and including policy making must get ready for it and and must adapt to uh, to these new circumstances. So then uh, the way how the policy was uh, uh, created before or how the science was uh, uh, performing before is not valid anymore. And if both uh, would like to survive and play an important role in the society as they used to play in the past, they have to, they have to adapt.
0: So it's not just science advice that needs to change, it's science itself? No, absolutely, absolutely. Science
1: is uh, facing several challenges. Uh, one is the, the integrity of science. I think that we have the explosion of the problems which are uh, related to integrity of science. And I think that in this respect, science must find the the completely new way how to to improve the integrity and trust in the society. Uh, But uh, also, we have uh, many non-scientific actors uh, now entering entering the field uh, of science or uh, entering the field of uh, data, information and knowledge and in this respect uh, we have to we have to somehow adapt to this uh, uh, to this phenomena that it's not uh, um, i would say only the field uh, for the scientists anybody is entering and anybody is able to provide uh, uh, fake news but uh, uh, anybody is actually able to provide very relevant uh, um, very, very relevant, in important, and interesting knowledge right now because uh, of of this of these changes changes in technologies in uh, in the society. So I think that from that point of view, this is uh, this is a fundamental change. And the biggest challenge in front of the science is complexity of the world because everything is becoming faster, everything is becoming closer. And science is still uh, embedded in the silos, silos of the fields, and it's very, uh, it's very rare to see uh, the science being able to become really uh, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, uh, and uh, to tackle the complex issues. And uh, all policy questions are complex. So then, if if science is unable to do it, so then then we have a problem.
0: That's interesting. So I do want to get into the practical question of of, uh, what exactly is your prescription? What does quote unquote science need to do to adapt to these challenges? But I also have a more general question about that particular target audience, because it's all very well to say um, the JRC faced such and such a challenge and it adapted and now it fits better with the political landscape that it works in. But that's a very specific institutional setting in your handbook. I take it, aims to speak much more broadly than that. So in which case, to whom? When you say science needs to change, well, there isn't one monolithic institution called science. So who exactly is your advice for? So
1: the the handbook can be actually used by anybody, any scientist, any scientific organization, uh, which is uh, uh, willing to enter the field of uh, uh, science and policy interaction to anybody who is willing um, or aiming at using his or her knowledge uh, for uh, the better uh, society. So actually, this is, it can be university, it can be academia, it can be individual scientists who would like to, uh, to uh, be in one or another way uh, involved in, in uh, making.
0: There is... One interpretation of what you're saying, which, uh, which could be seen as threatening to what many people think science is fundamentally about, uh, do you see any space in the world at all for the model of the scientist who just sits in the ivory tower and does his or her own research for the sake of intellectual curiosity and progress in the field? Or is that idea of a purely academic scientist disconnected from society? Is that all part of 1.0 and needs to be swept away?
1: No, no, I don't think that uh, uh, this must be totally uh, abandoned. I think that we need to we need to adapt the combination because uh, in in the process of science and scientific discoveries, we need to uh, have a tranquility. We need to have sometimes a separation, but we cannot have a institution or we cannot have uh, all significant part of our scientific career. Which is isolated from the society. I don't think that this is possible right now. So we need to to separate it. We need to to have a little bit of uh, uh, of the space for reflection, but at the same time we need to be uh, in in a uh, in a sort of social interaction with the society, uh, because otherwise we are unable to understand. Uh, uh, the complexity of the society if you really want uh, that the science is uh, contributing to, to the uh, development of the society.
2: It is a bit of a spectrum in terms of uh, you know, different roles within the field of science. So I would say that there are some scientists who perhaps won't have to dramatically change their practices because they just have to do their research. You know as as, sort of as they as they used to do it but they have to understand that perhaps they are part of a broader mechanism of bringing the science and translating the science uh further um towards towards policy making because you can i i don't think that you know all scientists have to become necessarily uh, extremely applied and work super closely with policymakers. But at the same time, even if they provide something that some of their um, colleagues who are working closely with policy uh, makers um, are, are, are discussing then with them, they still need to have an awareness that, um, that, that their knowledge is landing uh, somewhere further on and and for that uh, i think it's best when there are institutional processes or mechanisms for which uh for which then uh, we can make connections between this work which is slightly more isolated done a little bit more in uh in in the tranquility of one's um of one's office or lab uh, but then having having ways for which it can be uh, it can be channeled or it can be part of this two-way communication with policymakers and so that we can make sense of it in the context of what it could mean for society or or policy.
0: All right. So this is good. Uh, We're getting onto the practical side of things. So what kind of institutional setups are you talking about? Is this the role you see for boundary organizations working between science and policy?
2: Uh, I would say it doesn't necessarily have to be boundary organizations per se, but, it, but these should be then some sort of boundary um, setups. Uh, so um, I, I, I leave to Vladimir perhaps to discuss the details, but within the GRC, uh, we have set up, uh, in the recent years, the knowledge centers and the competence centers, for instance, um, or the communities of practice, which work around um, specific, uh, not necessarily academic disciplines, but rather policy topics and, and bring knowledge from, from different corners and try to build those interactions with uh, with uh, external stakeholders as well. Um, so these are ways for which more systematically um uh, policymakers and scientists can come together or or at least um, can can have some productive interactions, even if we have teams behind um, um, that that, that do the science um, still in more details and who are working not necessarily in direct contact with policymakers.
1: Yeah, we can we can talk about boundary organizations. Indeed, uh, JRC is uh, is uh, I would say a typical boundary organization uh, between uh, science and policymaking. But it's not uh, necessarily only. We should not be talking only about the organizations. We can be talking about a part, uh, some parts of the organization. I can perfectly imagine Academy of Sciences developing one department. Uh, or one uh, part of the of the body of academy uh, to interact uh, on a more regular basis with uh, with the policy making, understanding policy making and making links uh, to towards uh, uh, different parts of the academy to the, towards different members of the academy depending on the on the setting and being able to uh, to in a way translate the science into scientific evidence for policy making, because this is actually the role of the boundary organization, is to translate the needs of the policymakers into uh, scientific questions. In a way, uh, we have to understand that policy problem is not automatically research question, and vice versa, research outcome uh, or scientific outcome is not uh, uh, automatically the answer to the policy need. So then we need to have this boundary uh filtering or translation, however we want to uh to call it. And this can be done, and uh, this can be created at the university or it can be a consortia of different universities, it can be academy of sciences, it can be uh many different settings. Uh, obviously, the commission is lucky uh to have a joint research center. But it's unlucky not to have any any European university or any European academy uh, uh, which is uh, which is not rooted in one uh, member state. And and Commission needs to have independent uh, uh, scientific body in this respect. So that's why. Um, and the, the joint research center was created uh, uh, many years ago. So then there are different ways. Uh, it doesn't need to be only the organizations like uh, a joint research center, but it can be it can be different uh, uh, different institutional setting. Only what we need to, to bear in mind is is this uh, translation function. That if we take uh, the scientist directly from the lab. Uh, and uh, we place him or her uh, to to the to the policy department of, of the ministry or commission department it is very likely to be a failure. So then we need to have uh, we need to to, to understand that the, these are two completely different words with two completely different uh, settings of rules settings of uh, workflows approaches, mindsets, and this needs to be respected and uh, um, in a way uh, somehow um, took care of.
0: Yeah, okay. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Uh, There's nothing to argue with there. But now I worry that I've pushed you too far in the other direction, because what you just described sounds to me like the traditional model, where you have the scientists doing the work, and then you have your neutral brokers, the science communicators, the boundary organizations, however you described them, translating the scientific results and packaging it so it's useful to policymakers. Well, I don't think that can be the essence of, of 2.0, because it sounds to me like what's already happening, certainly in academies that I know about and universities that have aspirations for their research to impact on policymaking.
1: No, indeed, indeed. This is, we are talking about, uh, uh, your question was about institu- institutional settings. It's uh, It's, I would say, necessary Frame for uh, science uh, uh, for policy 2.0. What uh, what is in the essence is exactly co creation, is this creation of the trust, is uh, intimate uh, collaboration uh, between uh, policymakers and scientists. Because very often, and when when we are talking about this deficit model or 1.0, these are sets of recommendations which are provided by uh, by the science. Uh, these are reports. Uh, at the end of each report, there are uh, twenty to one hundred recommendations which policymakers are supposed to uh, supposed to adopt. Uh, which, when I was on on the side uh, of the policymakers, it made me totally frustrated because you know uh, whatever I do, I, I am unable to uh, to adopt uh, uh, 90 or 50 recommendations that this is not the role of science. Science is not supposed to recommend. This is really, uh, in a way, the decision of the policy makers and, and the politicians. So we may work together uh, but we need to respect uh, our uh, our own role in this in this process, and uh, the role of science is to provide the evidence to provide the scenarios provide the options. but the decision uh is with the policymakers and and with the politicians so then this is so this is first and and the most important feature is this co creation to create a spaces uh for uh, the meeting, for informal settings, for informal exchange of information. We know that very often, uh, informal advice, informal, uh, I- I- informal uh, evidence uh, is uh, much more powerful than, than the formal reports. So that's the first element. The second element is uh, uh, indeed the complexity, embracing complexity. And this is uh, for, for which you need to, to enter uh, this interdisciplinarity, this cooperation on the side of, uh, of the scientists, uh, the cooperation between disciplines, uh, natural sciences, engineering, technical sciences with humanities and social sciences. And that's not obvious. How many organizations you have uh, uh, on this planet able to provide this kind of complex, uh, uh, complex uh, uh, answer? so not, not that very many, so this is one uh, uh, or the second very important uh, element A third important element is actually uh, dealing with this uh, data information and knowledge deluge uh, is to work as a lighthouse uh, as as somebody who is uh, uh, able to filter, package, process and package the, the, the knowledge in a way that it is digestible uh, by the, the policymakers. And this is uh, another very important issue. How many uh, research organizations, universities we have with a clear, uh, clear policy on knowledge management? Not that many. And the, the fourth element is uh, uh, forward-looking uh, skills that build uh, or, or abandon uh, the old-fashioned extrapolation Uh, of the past into the future so it's not working like this because in this uh, exponential time we are most likely to make the mistakes whenever we try to extrapolate the past uh, into the future so then this is the fourth uh, important dimension uh, which uh, is in a way in the foundation of science uh, for policy 2.0 all
0: right great thanks i'm i'm sorry for taking you around the houses to get there but i think It's clear. So we have we have co-creation. We have um, interdisciplinary work, which we need to tackle the big increase in complexity. We have knowledge management. So working as a lighthouse for non-scientists, as you put it very vividly. And then we have a new kind of foresight, which doesn't assume things will continue as they are.
2: I think also an important distinction uh, with compared to what you said uh, Toby about the the sort of traditional way of translating certain results and sort of picking up what could be relevant for policy i I think what's fundamental in in our vision is that um, is that scientists, if they want to have impact and if they want to be relevant, should actually from the very beginning think in terms of what research questions will be relevant in a particular moment and it doesn't always have to be research questions for for new uh, for new research it might also be questions that are much more for for knowledge management and for just uh, um, assembling uh, different pieces pieces of evidence and essentially uh, as opposed to um, as opposed to f- f- figuring out at the end what could be of interest to policymakers from all this work starting from the point of how do we want to, to help the current, uh, the current policy process? That's I think an important part of, of the shift.
0: Yeah. So setting the research agenda with an eye on what policymakers might need. You mentioned this in passing a while ago, I think, Marta, your handbook is obviously aimed at the science side, but do you think there's a, a responsibility also for policymakers to change how they do things?
2: um that that is actually what we tend to what we tend to think and and part of our work um is also directed um to policymakers. we are um we are actually thinking of um of what are the competencies key competencies that um that resilient policymakers um need to need to have and big part of that is indeed uh the, the the capacity to work with evidence to properly um understand it and to and to, to know how to manage the relationships with um with, with with scientists so um i i tend to say that um that it's not just a burden on the side of, of scientists and they may change all they want but if there is no not going to be um any willingness to also open up and to to, to want to listen um, I, I think uh, you know this is sort of a two-way two-way street. I mean, I would say that it's it's not to blame either side because I think these are these are simply um, often words which are structured in slightly different ways, and it's difficult for them to to immediately understand each other. But I think um, uh, policymakers are hungry for that knowledge, and I think uh, and, and I think there is some willingness on, on their um, on their side. There is work to be done as well on their side.
1: Yeah, the important part is uh, is a creation of trust and mutual understanding. Uh, uh, and, and trust, uh, well, you can you can trust somebody on the human uh, level, but you need to trust uh, as uh, uh, the, each other also at um, I would say this professional level. That means to understand each other, and uh, <clears throat> I can tell you. Uh, two examples of uh, what we introduced in GRC. Uh, We introduced the placement of scientists into policy departments. And at the beginning, it was uh, quite difficult to overcome the barrier because uh, the people on the side of uh, of the policymakers they were a bit hesitant saying, oh, we are extremely busy, we don't have space, and uh, maybe we can do it later, etc. But uh, first, when we did it, uh, when we convinced few departments of the Commission to take scientists for a few weeks, and that was, uh, you know, like the avalanche. Uh, it was complete, uh, complete change on both sides. Uh, our scientists, in spite of working for years in a JRC, were completely shocked and surprised by the way uh, the policymaking is working. And uh, and the colleagues from uh, you know, from the policy departments, they were absolutely excited. oh, we have somebody, we can always come to talk and to ask the question uh, we do not we do not understand and they know everything or if they don't know, they know where to find it. This is fantastic. Let's do it, uh, let's do it more frequently, let's do it more. So when that opened the avalanche uh, in a way, and then, we also introduced in this spirit of co-creation and collaboration and interaction um, the, the series of summer schools, or it was then winter schools and uh, uh, spring schools, etc. Uh, uh, putting together uh, the scientists and uh, uh, scientists and policymakers together to talk uh, about one particular topic, uh, policy-related topic. And this was also Extremely successful, extremely useful, and just uh, showed very clearly that there is, uh, um, in a way, hidden hunger on both sides, and they they didn't know they they would uh, need this, but actually they were surprised how uh, useful uh, this kind of interaction was, and and I think that. Uh, these two examples are simply, they were convincing us that this is the right
0: way. Let's talk a bit about co-creation then, which is one of the key elements you mentioned. And, uh, yeah, and it's certainly a buzzword at the moment. So I want to try and put to you two slightly mischievous objections to the whole idea, and then you can pick up on either or both of them, whichever you think has the most merit. So the first objection is the more traditional one, and it goes something like this. If you start intertwining policymakers and scientists, don't you start to lose something important, which is the clear demarcation between the two, which has the value of uh, preserving the independence of science, reducing the risk of bias, reducing the risk, actually, of what Marta was endorsing a few minutes ago, which is When scientists plan their research, they try to consciously punt it in the direction which they think policymakers will find relevant. I mean, in itself, that's kind of okay. But then there's a fine line between working on society's priorities and working on what you think the politicians of the day will find interesting, which is not necessarily compatible with the traditional model of the scholarly life as like pure and independent and self-directed. And, and often keeping a clear separation between science and policy is, is supposed to be the antidote to that risk. And also the antidote to things like uh, groupthink and so on, where you don't want to have all the work done in one room with closed doors because that can limit creativity. So that's one kind of objection possibly. And the second one is more about perception. So thinking about what you said, Vladimir, about trust, you're right, I'm sure, to suggest that intertwining science and policy Strengthens that mutual trust between scientists and policymakers, sure. But there's another important kind of trust, which is the trust that the public needs to have in the decisions that are being made. And one feature of the old linear model, or 1.0, if you like, is that it has the very clear distinction where the input of scientists at some point stops and the decision passes to the political sphere. And things don't cross that boundary. Uh, all the time. And that distinction is publicly visible, and its visibility is part of what maintains public trust in the whole model, maybe. So is there a risk that a system built on co-creation, which might well be much more effective, as you say, at getting evidence into policy, nonetheless risks making that demarcation Hard to see from the outside, so it undermines public trust in the system, which could make it harder, I suppose, then for scientists to give unbiased advice, just because of the unclarity. I mean, okay, so that's that's a lot. I apologize, but like I say, feel free to pick up either of you on whatever you think is interesting.
1: Actually, I think that uh, it they're they're both very similar, and I think that it can be it can be boiled down to. Uh, integrity and transparency to these key keywords and 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 for me this is this is absolutely fundamental um so it is uh, uh it doesn't mean that you are losing integrity and independence if you are interacting with somebody so this is uh, this this would be uh very strange if we if we accept this uh it is at the end um, at the end uh, of each policy process, you provide the evidence. And it uh, means that uh, you have to uh, keep your integrity in providing this evidence and publishing this evidence. And I think that John uh, Joint Research Center is, is an excellent example of the organization which is inside the huge administrative, institutional, we may say, bureaucratic setting. And still, uh, the organization over decades was able to maintain its own uh, integrity. And uh, in a way, independence. It's not, uh, you know, it depends on, on how, how we look at this, but, uh, but definitely the integrity has been kept for decades. Uh, that means that if there was a scientific evidence, uh, this evidence was not adapted to the policy preferences. So then this is absolutely fundamental in this respect. So if this is kept, you may have uh, uh, as many interactions as, as you wish. Just you need to be, uh, you need to be very rigorous in your, uh, in your evidence uh, making. And uh, well, uh, vis-a-vis democracy, science is not democratic the policy making is democratic so it's uh, it's not uh, it's not uh, that uh, uh, that this kind of interaction would somehow uh, somehow uh, undermine uh, any democratic principle because uh, what would not be democratic if uh, uh, automatically every scientific result uh, result is taken and becoming the law or directive or whatever, that would be completely undemocratic because scientific organizations are not democratic. The policy organizations are democratic. Politicians are uh, in in a way produced by uh, representative democracy. So then this is an important element to to, to keep in mind. And uh, um, the transparency is uh, in a way important that even if there is a scientific evidence provided by the scientists, it can be refused by the policymakers, and uh, you have uh, very many examples uh, when uh, the the scientific evidence uh, has been uh, in a way refused. But if this is transparently communicated to the public, um, so that's fine. And you have uh, you may you may uh, mention uh, whatever field of nuclear. Energy uh, genetically modified organisms uh, uh, many <clears throat> many issues uh, dealing with uh, food safety or shale gas whatever uh, you can you can take all those very controversial issues where the policy is deciding uh, uh, eventually against uh, the, the evidence. I,
2: and, and thank you Thank you Toby for for raising these issues because I think they uh, they definitely come as the uh, as inevitably as part of, of, of the vision as we describe. And of course there are risks of, of, uh, of undue influence or certain pressures and expectations but I think our clear, our, our clear line is that scientists need to need to be critical friends. So essentially, they need to be close because that helps with uh, that helps to nuance and contextualize uh, the knowledge that they have, and they can make, they can help policymakers make sense of it. But they also uh, they also have to speak up in in, in situations where that could be um, misused. I also understand where people are coming from because we we hear we hear this from our, our colleagues as well that uh, you know they think they cannot talk to policymakers because it may compromise their research or or even uh, you know they might not want to. Um, to create a slightly non-standard graph which could highlight some of the main points because that might be already influencing and not just objectively informing. But I think what we desperately need uh, as a a scientific community is is having a more nuanced uh, concept of of, of objectivity and and really understanding that there is no such thing as a view from nowhere and and no communication is, is neutral in that sense. We always choose... What we decide to um, to include in our in our briefs or include in our presentations, um, and uh, if we take this extreme view that any contact uh, or, or or any strategic decision of how you communicate is already a breach of integrity, then we really um, we really run the risk of a lot of precious precious knowledge um, being being lost. Um, so I would say that transparency indeed is an important uh, point, but also perhaps uh, scientists who engage closely with policymakers need to find ways of recognizing those pressures which are undue and and, and ways of, of of fighting them off, of being brave and not uh, and not simply following whatever um, might be sometimes expected of them in this or mischievous uh, mischievous sense, and. Uh, if scientists think that they can be sort of uh, abused, uh, their trust can be abused. They, they they don't necessarily they they don't have to engage in in, in those circumstances. Uh, I I think, and on the uh, on the point of, of, of democracy versus technocracy in that sense, I think we're quite uh, we're quite often advocate for reframing the whole evidence based. Discussion and a discussion about evidence-based policymaking into one, uh, which is about evidence-informed policymaking. Really, uh, really knowing that evidence is just one part of the of the decision um, process. And I think we're not really even in this integrated uh, model of close uh, collaboration and co-creation. I don't think we really are at risk of that. I think on the one hand. Uh, politicians and policymakers would still want to retain uh, their boundary of saying you know i i hear your advice but i have the liberty to do whatever i want but then I think what's important is 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 the communication of 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 um, of the background of their decisions um, and, um, and 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 really sort of the clear um, clear communication to the public in terms of what, uh, what what basis of the decision was. I don't know if we get that enough, uh, maybe maybe not always. And if I just one, I guess, additional point is that, well, depending on how we think about democratic values, but there's also, especially when you, when you think about social science, is that um, a, a lot of social scientific insights can really bring in uh, some interesting insights about human behavior or certain inequities that actually help understand better uh, the, the, um, the, the, the side of the population and, and, and uh, of, of, of the citizens and, and help actually improve democratic outcomes potentially.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And, and that's something I think we've seen in the scientific advice mechanism too, that, that the inclusion of social sciences and humanities and philosophy and so on can really take the edge off the so-called hard science and shore up the citizen perspective. As for the rest, mm, well, I mean, one thing I take away from what you're saying is that the more integrated the model, the more of the responsibility for maintaining integrity and keeping everything above board rests on the shoulders of the actors, the scientists and the politicians, rather than relying on a a systemic separation to protect you. I still have the perception worry, though, and I think I uh, I may have thrown a spanner in by mentioning democratic values, because I didn't intend to suggest, well, the most scepticism I can muster for the purposes of the question uh, is not that democratic values are really threatened by integrating expertise. I mean, no doubt some people might argue that, but I I think to me, it's more about perception. Like you, I've never met a politician who will actually roll over and say, oh, okay." I mean, that sounds stupid, but I guess the side just told me to do it, so I'll just do it. It doesn't happen. The risk I was raising was that the old model has a visible demarcation, whereas the new model, with the new model, outsiders looking in will not see that clear demarcation. So they might feel that something fishy is going on. Yeah. The democratic element is somehow polluted, regardless of whether it actually is.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah no, because I just wanted to, 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 ask, to, to add to that, that it, when it comes to those perceptions, it's true that... Uh, uh, you may you may still hear uh, politicians either you know blaming scientists for something or saying you know this was all the the decision of the scientists or the advice of the scientists or they they use uncertainty in in some way to maybe um, you know, not take some decision. But I would say that that can happen whether or not you have this genuinely close relation between scientists and and, and policymakers. In a sense, if you have science present or scientists present in any case within the political debate whether as as part of strong uh, institutions or, or, or just as part of the debate overall, I think that that argument can still be made.
0: Well, I'm sure that's true. Also, I suppose when you've got the intertwined model, or at least where you have scientists and politicians working together and understanding each other's worlds a bit better, it's also a bit easier then to avoid some of the problems or deal with some of the problems that you mentioned about subjectivity and so on. Like, for instance, you mentioned a scientist who might worry that in by choosing the axes of their graph or, or choosing to plot one thing against another, they're already making subjective choices and that endangers their objectivity. I mean, I think we all agree that is indeed what they're doing, but that's unavoidable, that like you said, there's no such thing as the view from nowhere. And if you have a co-creation model, the scientists can at least enter a dialogue about that graph with the policymakers and explain why they chose what they did and what they think it means and so on, and diagnose any potential misunderstandings and hopefully address them, rather than, I guess, just dumping the report on the politician's desk and walking away.
2: Exactly. Uh,
1: What is important uh, is uh, just also for the scientists to understand uh, that they are not value-free and they are not uh, 100% objective in their in their judgments and actually they are not discovering the truth they are discovering the latest uh, best possible knowledge actually we need to understand that uh, science is not ideal and the science does not have uh, always the answer to whatever whatever question uh, is there quite so
0: okay so, so I'm a research scientist. I've just finished reading your handbook and I'm all infused and looking forward to my new life contributing meaningfully to policymaking. What's the single most important message that you hope is ringing in my ears as I close the book? At, at least I, uh, I'm i a scientist as well, or
1: I I, I was a scientist and, and I was uh, always thinking in my scientific work uh, how this knowledge which I have or the things which I'm discovering, how they can help the society, how they can be useful. And uh, and I think that if we develop this kind of uh, dimension in our work, if we always try as a scientist to look at the issue, at the result, at the knowledge we have from the angle of usefulness and impact on the society. But I think that if we, if we keep this in mind, I think that that would be the best contribution into slight change of the mindset. Great.
0: Marta, do you have a top tip?
2: Um, it's a very tricky question when you have to find uh, one thing that is, that is the, the first step to take. Uh, I, I think an important... Message that we're trying to pass with the book is that the science for policy is uh, is a sort of collective effort, a team sport, and um, and there are already some processes that perhaps um, are at place into which individual scientists can um, can plug themselves in, and if not, uh, really to think of okay, how where I can find allies, where I can find people or, or um, find platforms for which uh, for which I could uh, become more visible so you know, where could I speak, how could I make myself more known so, so that I don't have to uh, do it all by myself And perhaps also think of are there people around me who have those complementary skills? are there are there communicators in my in my organization? are there people who understand policy a bit more? I mean if you think about, uh, how diverse universities are—you uh, may actually have colleagues in political science departments working on you know, the institutional setups for science advice, and you might not even know that that they are also doing this as their, as their research work. So it's really about thinking how to bring people together in this endeavor.
0: Okay. One more thing before we go. In the handbook, you uh, talk a lot about the need to move towards science for policy 2.0. But at the same time, you also suggest here and there that this still might not be enough. I think at one point you make a rather enigmatic reference to uh, science for policy 3.0 in the future. So what's what's your thinking there? What more do you think needs to change?
1: What uh, we... Started, but we scratched only the surface. Uh, is uh, engagement. Uh, I think that um, uh, this is understanding the values and engaging the people in, in the policy making, in the science, uh, uh, in, in, the, in, in the evidence. I think that if, if we think a, a bit ahead, if you think about uh, climate uh, change, and uh, uh, different uh, measures which need to be taken in this respect. If you take example of transport and uh, huge changes uh, which we need to uh, introduce in the, in the field of transport, um, you, can, you can go on, the personal, uh, the, the personal data, etc. So they are very tough and difficult decisions uh, uh, to be made. And uh, uh, every politician or policymaker uh, will uh, uh, postpone these decisions because they are very likely to create a negative negative reaction from from the public, from the people, from the citizens. And I think that, uh, and and we see it, uh, we see uh, big uh, changes in... uh, Uh, different social uh, insurance uh, retirement schemes, etc., which are uh, popping up uh, in in, uh, individual countries across Europe, but also beyond. And uh, uh, they are triggering, uh, uh, in in a way, uh, unhappiness of people. Uh, And the only way how to do it, how to be successful in this, is to involve and engage the citizens. And I think that This is uh, extremely underdeveloped uh, in in Europe, there are some good examples, uh, but I think that we need to to, uh, understand much better uh, this process, uh, which is the question of science, but we need to have uh, also courageous policymakers and politicians to engage in this kind of debate. Uh, and uh, uh, to be able to to use it as um, as one of the instruments of of the policy making. So then this is one part, and and the other part, which is very much linked to it, is the values. It's understanding the values. And if we uh, embrace this, uh, which is extremely difficult, um, uh, I I think that we can uh, can move to to this uh, science for policy or policy uh, 3.0.
2: I, I think what is crucial um, for, both partly for the success of Science for Policy 2.0, but I would think is fundamental for any further evolution, is the question of, uh, of incentives uh, within, uh, within science and, I mean professional incentives of how academic careers are, are structured, and what counts. As a meaningful output and as 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 work that is worth um, investing in, uh, because I think we have a fundamental problem of uh, of not enough credit given for for the work that is done more for policy or for communities uh, in any sort of engagement, co-creative sort of way. So if you if you think about people who are outside. Organizations like the GRC. I mean, in the GRC, we have a slightly easier situation because we have a clear mandate that our work um, is is, um, is done uh, primarily for policy. But if you look at as universities, people who are interested in, in having an impact are usually uh, those who are simply driven by their own wish to contribute to something more than just academic um, community and who mostly do it in their own time as, as, a, as, as an extra activity and I think if we really want um, to to see more more relevant knowledge be used in policy making in, in, in meaningful ways then we also need to understand that, um, that, that that it has to be seen as part of the um, of, of a job description of, a, of, an, of an academic to some degree. Again, I'm not saying that all researchers or scientists should should do that, but we should have as a community of, 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 of researchers a really serious discussion on, on, on how this could evolve and how we could not waste uh, precious knowledge uh, because the skills that are needed to, to be involved in policymaking are quite different uh, and they're additional to, to the traditional skill set of, of scientists and um, unless there are incentives not that many people will want to, 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 to take that on and, and really develop in those, in those directions that, that could help them really uh, have some impact.
0: Well be that as it may I'm sure that there are people listening to this scientists and perhaps others who found it as intriguing and as inspiring to listen to both of you talk about this topic as I have so of course I will put a link to the handbook in the show notes for listeners and uh, I recommend it very highly it's digestible interesting and, and well worth your time speaking of time thank you very much indeed both of you for your time and in general for your efforts to improve science for policy I'm looking forward to seeing them continue to bear fruit in the future
2: thank you so much yeah
0: thank you thank you The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learned societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. Sapea is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko so I will shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.